0: Good evening, and welcome to the 2012 Summer Lecture Series in Jewish History. Uh, this year's Summer Lecture Series is entitled, as you can see, "The War Against the Jewish Book." I give you my hats Thank you, Ari. Welcome. As said, we have a long haul to go between now and Tishbev, as You can understand that's why I started a, a little bit early to make it all work out. And uh, without any further ado, let's get right down to business. Uh, I. As you know, this is, I think, the fifth time we're doing this, chapter six. sixth. Uh, I try to devote the summers because of the nature of the three weeks to some tragic aspect of the Jewish past, and we have no shortage. <laughs> uh, this is not Switzerland with a boring history. Okay, uh, We've been through a lot of uh, tough times. As uh, the prophet says long ago, Sheva Yippo Tzadivikam, the... Uh, The Jewish people, like the ancient righteous person, can uh, take seven hits and knock down and get up again. Uh, What's significant in our history is not only that we'd be knocked down, which has happened, uh, but we get up. But uh, the study of the past and the stuff we've had to put up with, uh, I think is instructive. And um, although no one ever really learns from the mistakes of the past, maybe we will a little bit. (laughs) Um, And in that light, I wanted to devote Uh, this year's, the series, to a kind of a fairly broad theme, which I thought of in connection with my uh, recent trip to Italy, um, and therefore the home of the Catholic Church, and the home of a long, long uh, Jewish community uh, going back far away, and therefore of relationships between uh, Christianity, Western Christianity on the one hand, and Judaism on the other, um, which is uh, uh, an interesting one, and it ain't over. Uh, because, as we'll see, the uh, Catholic Church certainly is still a work in progress in uh, how they relate to the Jewish people and the Judaism. Interestingly, it's something that they are working out themselves. Uh, the Jewish religion has a somewhat of a different attitude, uh, perhaps a maddening one, as we'll see, and uh, therefore I hope it'll be uh, instructive as well as interesting. And certainly, uh, the very title itself, The War Against the Jewish Book, indicates that uh, We've gone through our share of violence physically, but we've also gone, and this is what I want to direct this year's set of talks about, we've also, unfortunately, had to undergo a fair amount of cultural violence. And those who know about, for example, today, the ever-spreading campaigns of disinvestment and things like that against Israel know cultural violence is not funny. Uh, sometimes it's, uh, you know, it, it. first of all, it leads to physical violence, and it also leads to. Uh, Terrible consequence across the board. So uh, without any further introduction, let me get right down into it in the subject of the war against the Jewish book. And I start by saying that although we Jews like to call ourselves, and it's fairly often heard, people of the book, it's not exactly true. We've only been the people of the book for about 1,500 years. Um, Compared to America, that's a long time. Compared to many other countries, it's not. And what I'm really saying is, for the first half of our history, I repeat, for the first half of our history, the Jewish people, actually, you'll be surprised, were the people without a book. Um, consider, we, almost, we were for a long time in rabbinic culture, it's funny the way things developed, it's not like that now, but for a long time, we were in rabbinic culture, the Jews against books, right? in favor of orality, um, just the very idea of uh, the Torah Shibik's of the Bible is uh, not as ancient as you think. Maybe the Chumash is, but you'd have to go back, even in Jewish tradition, to the time of the Anche Knesset Gadol and all the time of Ezra and uh, those parts, which is fairly well along after a thousand years in Jewish history or so, to the times when um, they took the step, not so willingly, but they took the steps to create the Tanakh, itself, the uh, Vim Um The Book of Books. The, uh, the famous Jewish traditional take on this is that's a fairly late origin. Uh, there was a time long ago in the first thousand years of our history or so, something like that. What we call the First Temple Era and those centuries when Jews were in Israel. Um, there was the Chumash, the Five Books of Moses and that was the totality of the Sacred Books. There were literate Jews of a literate society. Uh, There were probably people who wrote scrolls and things like this. We have records, I mean, mentions of them throughout the Tanakh. I'll just give you one example that anyone with the slightest uh, acquaintance with the biblical text will know. Every time a king dies in ancient Israel, says all the rest of what he did are written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah or Kings of Israel. So there are such books or or, or texts running around. There are other references uh, here and there. It says a literate society, and yet Jewish books in the sense of the uh, controlling and sacred literature, it was just the five books of Moses, and that's the way they wanted it. Uh, Therefore, imagine if you lived in the, uh, you know, 800 BC, that that kind of time, 700 BC, David and the kings of Judah, of Israel, what was there actually in the way of text? Free market. Uh, There were prophets in those days, plenty of them, a lot more than we know of, and they must have written stuff uh, where is it? Uh, there were false prophets we know all the time. The Bible is full of such characters. Novik Shekhar. Uh, they wrote stuff. Uh, where is it? Uh, there were governments and uh, societies. I don't know if they wrote novels, but there were written texts running around. Where are they? And the answer is they're all gone because the beginning of the Second Temple period, the traditional Jewish take on this is that in time Ezra and Hechem, as they call it, the, uh, the Men of Great Assembly, the, men, the, the, the Sanhedrin, to use an anachronistic term, uh, said, we don't like the fact that all these books are floating around, and the public doesn't know well, what's right or what's wrong, or what is and what isn't, and we're going to appoint ourselves a censorship and editorial commission, and we're going to go through all the books and we're going to decide in two piles, what goes in and what stays out, and whatever goes out, we're going to burn or get rid of as much as we can. So we're the ones who started the book burning business long ago. Okay, if, you want to, if, if you want to get accurate about it. And, uh... We called them the men of the Great Assembly, Knesset Dolo, because what they ended up with turned out in the long run uh, to be a very powerful, uh, the creation of a very powerful institution of a Jewish community and survival, which we kind of take for granted because you always take for granted the air that you breathe. And I'm referring to uh, the Bible, the Tanakh itself, because by the time they finished, what they ended up with was the 24 books of what we call the Torah Naveh which every Jew has, and almost the same, uh, almost the same uh, version. You know, maybe a few changes here and there, but basically the same. And it has become what Heinrich Heine very famously called the portable fatherland, which means that wherever you are around the world, from then till today, we all have this much in common. We got the same book. Now we can argue over the book, and we can disagree with it. We can battle over its legitimacy. We can do this. We're talking about the same book. If, on the other hand, we're talking about different books, we can't even have a conversation. We cannot even have an argument. I'll give you a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Can you debate with somebody, anyone here, about the Ethiopian sacred literature of the Jews of Ethiopia and that kind of one? We don't know what it is even. You see what I mean? So you can't even have a conversation. The very fact that you all have the same book allows us to communicate, even argue, because it's a commonality, as a family does, because they're arguing over what to do with grandpa's (laughs) bachar. We all know what we're talking about. It's the same thing. And so they created, um, consciously, a powerful uh, centripetal influence, which enables the Jews to survive the terrible centrifugal forces, which will characterize the diaspora, which is going to emerge in the late Second Temple and post Second Temple period, which constitutes the essential Jewish reality today. So I repeat, I go anywhere in the world, and to be perfectly frank, you go Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, or whatever. And you can walk in, it's the same Pumish, the same Bible. It might interpret it differently. You might have disagreements of what's on the bottom, right? In the commentaries, it's the same text. And it's interesting. And so they did this by burning all the other books and saying no one should ever have anything with any other things. They call them Sforim Kitsonium. The mission says whoever reads them goes straight to hell. Uh, but these 24 will remain the books. And uh, what that means is, that for quite a number of centuries, um, the Jewish authorities, such as they were, fought a battle to prevent uh, any new texts from being added to the canon and uh, messing up what they saw as this kind of pristine, uh, small set of texts that all Jews can subscribe to. It's interesting. Furthermore, they already developed a long time ago an attitude, which is going to be very pertinent to what we're going to be talking about in this series, which is uh, keep everything in-house and don't let the Gentiles know about it. It wasn't let's tell our story to others, they didn't want to do that, they said let's keep it in-house. But on the other hand, as you can imagine, Jews, you have no unanimity, uh, you can never really get a consensus on anything, ask anyone involved in Jewish organizational life. But one area of uh, disagreement over this had to do with the following. Not that long after the time Ezra Nehemiah, you know, whatever, whether it's a short time or a longer time, uh, Alexander the Great conquers the Persian Empire, and the Jews enter what they call the Hellenistic era. And so they live in the era when the world is dominated by Greek culture. And um, you really start to get a diaspora, in that you have significant Jewish communities living in places they don't speak Hebrew, even. Like we in America, most of us, unfortunately, aren't good in Hebrew. We're better in English. I'm speaking at this very moment in English, even though I'm an Orthodox synagogue and uh, very significant communities, wealthy, important, and they wanted art scroll, so to speak. You know, they wanted some way of bridging the gap, the language barrier, between the text and themselves. And so what emerges out of all this is a series of attempts, one or another, to translate, for the first time ever, the Bible, the Scripture, into Greek, uh, the most famous is what you call the Septuagint, which I know many are famous with, the LXX, the 70 the Jewish elders who did it. Well, uh, there are two versions of the story of the translation of the Bible into Greek. One is positive, one is negative. The positive one is written in Greek, <laughs> not surprisingly. It's in the Pseudepigrapha It's called the Letter of Aristeus, And it's an old book, whether it's exactly accurate or not. But bottom line is they say this was a great thing. The king of Egypt was a great guy. He, inv- he invited all the Jewish elders come to uh, uh, Alexandria in Egypt, he treated them uh, with kid gloves and he gave them a lot of presents and things like that. They have this big banquet in which they have all these uh, very learned philosophical discussions. When it's all over, they go out into the Nile River on an island and they translate the Bible into Greek and everybody's happy. In the Talmud, the rabbinical side, <laughs> the Haredi uh, reaction, it was a fast day. You know? The eighth of Teves. We just fold it together now into Asarba Teves. When you do the Slichos, those who do, read the Slichos, on the famous fast day of the Asarbatev, the 10th of Tavis, it says, On the eighth day, uh, in Sani Melchiorven, Lift of the Greek king, meaning the king of Egypt, Ptolemy II, forced me to translate the Bible in the Greek. The ninth day was something else, the tenth day was something else. Can't ask people to fast three days in a row. Put it all together in the tenth day. But in other words, they strongly disapproved, I repeat. And they disapproved. Because we don't want our stuff getting out there. And to be perfectly honest, I spoke about this once downtown at the Lloyd Street. With the publication of the Bible into Greek, you get the beginnings of an anti-Semitism. Because there's a lot of things in there that people can find offensive. In general, who says you're the chosen people? What do I mean? Secondly, if you're an Egyptian, the Bible is definitely an anti-Egyptian rant. right? Egypt comes out looking bad and stupid, too. Pharaoh said you will not go. And Moses says, yes, we will. Yeah. And Pharaoh says, Miyasha, who is the Lord? I don't have to listen to him. And we all know the end of the story. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? If it's in-house, if someone else doesn't know about it, there's no harm done. If it gets out there, there are consequences. I can assure you that modern, I mean, I'm not the one that says this. Uh, scholars on the subject will tell you, modern anti-Semitism can be traced back to ancient Alexandria. There's a, there's a line from uh, the modern times to Protocols they'll Design, to Henry Ford to this, that, and the other, down to the times of Appian, and earlier than that, in Alexandria, after the translation of the Bible in the Greek. And so the rabbis knew uh, what they're talking about in, in, in that kind of a sense. So we're not necessarily so hotsy-totsy about translating, I mean, put, putting books out there, or, or more books than they're already there. We're not even so crazy about putting translations out there. And uh, let me tell you something. Uh <laughs> I personally have had the experience. I once Googled myself, just want to see what's on there. Nazi website. Why am I on a Nazi website? No, wait a minute. Why am I on a Nazi website? I translated the uh, part of the Art Scroll um, to Mars Sanhedrin, among other things. And in there, you have all kinds of agatitas. And some of those agatitas are um, not complimentary towards people who are not Jewish. They're right in the Nazi website. Notice they took the trouble to do it. It was a little disconcerting to myself but it goes to show you what you and I already know, which is in the age of YouTube and all the rest of it, you've got to watch what you say You keep your mouth shut. And watch what you write and print. We, we are sensitized to this now because of modern technology. But it's a fairly new it's consciousness. It's a fairly new sensibility. Once upon a time, a person wrote something in Chinese, he could reasonably expect that people who are not Chinese would not ever read it. You see? So the world has shrunk in the technological sense, as we all know, as shrinking smaller and smaller the time, thanks to, you know, YouTube and the internet and all the rest of it. If that's true about the, uh, well, let let me just add one more point. Uh, This is the reason why uh, official Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, traditional Judaism, has always been very rejectionist towards the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha and those kinds of books. These are texts that were written by Jews very often in the Second Temple period. That's old. And the from Jews were always uh, looking at them as scans and uh, either semi-rejectionist or totally rejectionist. I live with this because every time Hanukkah comes around, for example, the original source, if you want to get down to it, of the actual history of uh, the campaigns of Judah Maccabee the very name Maccabee itself is only in the Apocryphal works. The Apocryphal is a name given uh, by the Church to uh, a number of texts, 17, 18, 19 texts, from the Second Temple period, written by Jews mostly, having nothing to do with Christianity, uh, which are included by the Christians for their purposes in the New Testament. I repeat, they are pre-Christian, they have nothing to with Christianity. Four of them would be Maccabees 1, 2, 3, and 4. So all the stories that you grew up with, and I grew up with, about Judah Maccabee and how the guy said, uh, who wants to step forward and offer the sacrifice to the Greeks? And one said, I will do it, and Matt Asai said, oh yeah, and he stabbed him again. That's not in the Gemara, it's not in the Chazal, I promise you. The word Maccabee itself does not appear in rabbinic literature, even though we were all grown up to hear, but it's actually not true. And uh, it's, only in the, it's only in the Greek texts, and rejected by official Judaism. So it's just interesting to consider the fact that Judaism had to wage a battle, and they did, for centuries, against what they viewed as contamination by outside texts claiming to be new and authoritative ones within our tradition. We're not a people of a book yet. And then that's the easy part. Um, By the way, I'm referring to religious books over here, not Stam books, you understand. In other words, I'm sure there were Jews who wrote things. Uh, We were not an illiterate society. I'm talking about official core doctrine, literature, that sort of thing. Um, if that's true of the written law, what about the oral law, the Torah Peh? Hundred times more so. The very notion and tradition that we have in Judaism, a definitional notion, a basic notion, that there's something called the oral laws itself, by itself, the name itself tells you it's not supposed to be written. In fact, the Gemara even says of itself that you're not allowed to write down uh, any of the uh, non stuff, They're opposed to that in principle. What they're therefore saying is, God does not want it to happen that way. God wanted an oral religion. Isn't that interesting? If you go to a yeshiva, if you want to call it that, literally 1,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago, in the time of King David, what's a yeshiva? There's no books. You're not allowed to have books. It was a different kind of learning. Don't be anachronistic. Take off the glasses of the year 2012 and go back to the year 12. <laughs> or 12 BCE. Or 112 BC, Or past that. Were there people studying Judea? Yeah, what was it? That's a whole discussion and I really can't get into it totally but I'll, I'll get into it a little bit. It's a fascinating discussion that deserves fuller treatment elsewhere but I'll touch on it for our purposes now. If you think it through, I would argue that the way God wanted it, not the way we have it today, The way God wanted it was that you don't study a text because they're against text in principle, but you study people. Long ago, if I went, um, if I I can go in a time machine, 2,500 years ago or 3,000 years ago, and you went to study with, for example, Eliyahu Anavi or whatever it is, you studied the man. There were no books. There were no texts. It's not like he memorized stuff and gave gave it over to you. I assure you, they were in principle opposed to the idea of a text. They wanted everything to be that each teacher should say it in his way, uniquely, and it'll work for you and I, you know, we can establish a hookup intellectually this way, or not. I'll say, this is not the way it works for me, I'll go to the other person. It's a different kind of educational idea. You understand? The uh, she of gone. Was written in the year nine eighty seven, one of the Gonim in Babylonia. This is in the the post-Talmudic period. Has a long discussion of this. Uh, it's very fascinating, and he says they were in the older generations. They were opposed to having any kind of a text, and uh, you can give the same material over, but everyone will do it in a different way. I always like to say the world is divided into mathematicians and uh, humanists. You know, uh, and I'm not a mathematician. Mathematical types are very systematic they have a certain approach, and they would tell you, you want to learn Shabbos? Keep this in mind. There are 39 malachas, <laughs> and, uh, you know, 416 subparagraphs that can be divided by three general overarching categories, and some people eat that up, and I would fall asleep. And there are other people who would be raconteurs, and will tell you the same law, right? And the person would say, tell me about Shabbos. You know, it's a funny thing, I had a case once, not that long ago, It's actually a brother-in-law of mine, came on Shabbos, and uh, the chon had overcooked, and it was a case of a uh, right? And I told him this and that and the other, and the student would say, why'd you do that? Well, you have to understand, was this and this situation, all the, you, you understand what I'm saying? You're studying the person and his approach to the law, his approach to the text of the Torah itself. That's unique, that cannot be conveyed on paper. Once you put it in any kind of fixed form, it's frozen after that. So they were opposed to this, and they made it work, for fifteen hundred years, and then the system broke down. We're told, and eventually they had to convert from that into something different. There was a great transformation from a free form in principle to uh, a fixed text, and then to a written text. I always like to tell, for those who are able to follow, there's a very famous Mishnah very briefly at the beginning of and I didn't bring it with me. Where it says, uh, many will be familiar with this. It says, orla broken The night before Pesach, you're supposed to chametz. And, and you don't have to make a ridiculous as a place where you're sure you never put comments. And then it goes on to say Ba "Then why did you say why did they, the mission says? Why did they say that you do two rows in the, in the cellar? Uh, I thought you'd have to check where they never put it. That actually is a place where people bring comments because Waiters and butlers sometimes go down with a cheese sandwich when they come to bring the wine up, and they might have leave some, something, a sandwich behind. The Mishnah itself is referring to some older text. It's, when did they say two rows? I mean, they're referring there to some oral tradition, which they're not even sure of by this time. There's a whole lot to this. But I, I just want to get across the idea that once upon a time we had new no books, and we are against them. We are against them in principle. We want it to be that you study Shabbos and Kashras and Taras Mishpacha and interhuman relationships and Gemil Hasanim and a hundred different things by studying with a person, a great person that you feel is great, and you watch what he or she, I don't know, does um, under a whole wide variety of circumstances over the course of years, and then you pick up the Das Torah, as they talk, what they talk about. You didn't read texts and memorize them and pass tests. That was antithetical to the... Uh, to the uh, system, what it originally wanted. I'm going here for a reason. Uh, but suffice it to say that more or less around 400 BC, something like that, uh, a process begins which takes close to a 1,000 years. And uh, the Jewish religion, core uh, religious uh, ideas, are transformed from a totally non-textual one to the opposite, to books. We know what the train looked like at the beginning. No books. And we know what the train looks like at the end. They converted into a bunch of books, which we call the Talmud. That's what the Gemara, the Talmud in general. Um, I'll bring a chart, but uh, over the course of several centuries, they produce uh, 10, 15 books. The Mishnah, the Tosefta, eventually with the Galdu Gemara, the Medrash. These things collectively are called the Talmud. These are the first books ever put out. And, you know, uh, the Talmud itself is apologetic about it. They say Rabbi Yudanasi did the Mishnah because he felt it was a rush. I mean, emergency situation. It was being forgotten or maybe because of the Roman Empire and pressure. whatever There were historical reasons that necessitated this revolutionary and radical change. But it happened. And that means that by the time you get to the end of the ancient period, the beginning of the Middle Ages, uh, thereabouts, um, we've got books. <laughs> right? I don't say they got out there and everybody read them but the core Jewish values have, um, what shall I say, uh, been transformed. Not for the better. The Talmud says for not for the better. But it's what they had to do by being put into text. Because as soon as you put in text, you freeze it in time. Then it becomes a question, what does it mean? And second of all, you're conveying the idea that the same halacha applies for two people where it's not really, really true. It should be that if you really, really know what you're talking about, not for a me or you, but for a real person. Post- if you know what you're talking about, the same question asked by two different people going to get two answers. Right? And not because of wishy-washy, because the person really knows what he's talking about. You understand? And there's no such thing as a, uh, the same question having the same reality because I'm not you and you're not me and we all have different, uh, you know, lives and, 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 and circumstances. And now I can't do that because now you got, most of the time, you've got something called books. So the Mishnah Buruh says this, the halacha, so that's the end of it. Or, you know, someone like that. And... Uh, that is what the system turned into, or began to turn into, uh, when you get to the beginning of the Middle Ages, around the year 500 CE. So uh, this is, as I say, a big transformation. Let me tell you something. We're not even sure when these things were actually put down on paper. Um, I mentioned before, and I don't want to get too technical, there's something called the Letter of Ashura Gaon, which in an ancient text. It survives in two versions. It's very well known, the French version and the, Italian, and the Spanish version. In the Spanish version, it says that they actually wrote it down on paper. In the French version, it always says, no, they just memorized these texts like griots, you know what I mean, just memorized it orally. But even then, they were reluctant to write it down on paper until quite late in Jewish history. So uh, our Talmudic era is not as old as many people might possibly think. Why am I going through all this? Because it means something very important. During the entire first four or five hundred years of Christianity, the era of the beginnings of the religion, its growth and development, it spread across the Roman and the conquest of the Roman Empire, starting with our buddy Constantine over here. Um, uh, in the early 300s, he, is, I'm sure you know, was the first uh, Roman emperor to embrace Christianity uh, one way or the other. So um, all during the, his time and afterwards, and later, uh, be, you know, the Christianity spreads beyond the Roman Empire into the rest of Europe, the Jewish people at that time had no other religious books other than the Bible. Don't be surprised if early Christianity never heard of the Talmud. It wasn't there. The Talmud is a book. A book means there's a time that it was written and a day before. We don't know exactly when the Gemara was written, but it was a time it didn't exist. Now, it's a complex uh, topic, but it didn't exist once. And early Christianity rose and when? In the year 100, the year 200, 300, 400. uh, There were no books among the Jews that they encountered. If they lived in Israel, maybe they saw rabbis having conversations. And you and I know these conversations in later period were put down on paper and became what we call the Gemara, but they're no books. And so as far as the Christians are concerned, the Jewish people are the people of the book. When I say book, the Bible, the Old Testament. And that's it. They don't know anything else. The notion of the Torah, especially in the way that it gelled and evolved into a huge, complex, and rich business called the Talmud, is just something that was, that was not known to them. Uh... Go back for a minute. We were just here in Rome <laughs> a month ago. If anybody was, I see some people that were in there. There are two archers that survived Arch Archit Constantine. Right? Uh, Titus had to do with the Jews. Archit Constantine, very paganistic. The Senate gives it to Constantine. Uh, but as far as the Jews are concerned, he's real so and so because he was quite anti Semitic. Okay? The reason he had the church switched from Saturday to Sunday was because it was offensive to him that Christians should celebrate the same Sabbath. They you know, say, so we don't want to do a Jewish thing. Ew. <laughs> OK? So uh, now, the Christians were quite aware that the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And they knew that the Jews knew Hebrew, and they didn't. I mean, they were aware of that sort of thing. The Christians were also aware, may I say, of the fact that their translation of the Bible, which is called the Vulgate, is less than excellent. They were not unaware of the fact. You, you understand what I'm saying? The Christian religion arose, and especially in Western Europe, the New Testament is written in Greek, but eventually uh, nobody knew Greek in, in Western Europe and Italy and places like that. They translated a guy named St. Jerome, Geronimo, translated into, uh, in the 300s. In the time of Amorim, he was anti-Semite and he moved to Israel to learn Hebrew, enough Hebrew for him to translate the Old Testament uh, to his satisfaction. And, uh, you know, he got it basically right, but here and there is a fair number of mistakes. A classic example of where we did would disagree with him, an obvious mistake would be when they translate Lo Tirzach in the Ten Commandments as thou shalt not kill, and everybody knows it means that thou shalt not murder. I mean, it's a famous Rosh Bomb said he debated this with Catholic priests. They actually asked him what it really means. Uh, even we, who are not big Hebraists, know that there's a difference between Lo Taharog and Lo Tirzach. All right, I'm just trying to tell you that what that means is that they're pushing a religion whose foundation was the Old Testament. They don't understand the actual language of the Old Testament. If you ever run into a missionary, that's the first thing I always tell them. I say, can you read Hebrew? I know what you think is the truth. You're It's it's funny, but that's how it goes. So the church was aware of all this kind of stuff. The church, unlike the later Muslims, believed that the Hebrew Scriptures is basically accurate, although I'm not saying they subscribe to the Rambam's 13 principles. Uh, By that I mean, if you asked Christians... Uh, And this was the doctrine of the Catholic Church. Uh, The Old Testament is really the Old Testament. You understand, in Islam, it's not that way. The Muslims are taught from early on that the Jews on purpose changed around and doctored the text of the Chumash and the Tanakh to make them look bad, make the Muslims look bad. Therefore, the Jews are so perfidious that they would even dare to tamper with God's words. That's who Jews are. And as a result, the Torah, when it was originally given by God, I'm telling you what Islam says. The Torah was originally given by God. It was pristine and pure, and it was a great revolution, but you don't have it today, because after the Jews got through with it, they messed it up. I mean, there's reasons for this. Mohammed in the Quran even says, I debated with Jews, and I said something about, I tried to tell them a story, a parable based on, the, uh, on what happened to Miriam, the mother of Moses, and Yochebed, his sister, and the Jews bent over laughing and making fun of me. They said, you idiot, it's Miriam is the sister, and Yochavet is the mother. Don't you know anything? But I said, no, I'm right. And they showed me their Bible, and I said, you changed it and made me look bad. You understand? Know so, okay, that's what we're doing. But you can't argue with anybody. You know, they'll kill you. So the point is, the, 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 we live in such a world. The point is, the point is that the Christians didn't have this attitude. They say the Old Testament is basically what it is. Unfortunately, early Christians argued, and probably still do, uh, in a fascinating mirror image of the Jews, uh, the Jews are stuck on a superficial understanding of the Tanakh. It's amazing, but both the Jews and the Catholics came up with the idea of pardes. Uh, pshat, remes, uh, drash, sod. Different ways of understanding a Pesach. Right? I'm sure, I take it everybody knows what I'm talking about. The plain level, and the allegorical level, and the this level, and that level. And in Christianity, and in Judaism, to be perfectly honest, of uh, the main interpretation, uh, it was a big debate, it's always raged, which is the main interpretation? The pshat, or the or the drash, or the sod? The sod is the kabbalah, the mystical one. Uh, which is the real part of it? And, of course, to a Christian, uh, you read the Bible, and they read it not through the level of pshat. The, the Pope's right about this, I promise you. And they say, oh, the, the poor Jews are stuck in pshat. You understand? Uh, we understand, of course, that when it says there was Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, Obviously, one is the Father, one is the Son, and one is the Holy Ghost. That's the thing. The Jews say, hey, wait a minute, there was a guy named Avram, there was another guy named Yitzhak, there was another guy named Yaakov. Don't give me a So they couldn't really have a conversation, and the Jews didn't want to get at the level of drash and sod and all this with the Christians. That's one of the reasons why the Jewish biblical exegetes who lived in Ashkenaz, other than Rashi, were super heavy on pshat. People like the Hiskuni and the Panei rozo and even the Ezra in Spain to some degree or another, because whenever they were always battling with the Christians, they always wanted to assert the pshat. Uh, you understand? That's their way of, of battling the Christian interpretations. This doesn't mean Jesus. It means what it says. You know, what are you talking about? You know, that, that, that whole kind of approach. So the point is that the uh, Christians did believe in the uh, accuracy of the uh, Old Testament. They just said the Jews themselves didn't understand it. And so a Christian would not hurt a safer Torah. Get what I'm saying? because it's the Bible. He would not destroy, typically, anyway. I mean, I don't know if a pogrom got out of hand. But on a normal day-to-day basis, they're supposed to respect the Bible, too. It's their, it's their Bible, as well. I repeat, they say, we don't understand it right. But they understand that it's a sacred book. Um, they were regarded as Old Testaments. On the other hand, the Christians were not and could not have been aware of the slow evolution of the post-Khorban rabbinic culture, whose elite rabbis were conducting the discussions over several centuries, which discussions were eventually written down, edited repeatedly, and ultimately published as a set of texts called the Talmud. They just weren't aware of all this was going on. After all, where is most of the activity of the Talmud happening? In Bavel, and to a lesser degree, in Israel. Babylonia was outside the Christian zone. That was in what we call today Iraq, which is part of the Persian Empire, not the Roman Empire. There were some uh, strange Christian uh, sects in Babylonia there were, but that's very far to the periphery. Uh, the main center of Christianity, you know, was the Roman Empire, far off. And uh, there is such a thing called the Tanoim and the Talmud Yoshami. There were rabbis, significant rabbis in the Talmud who lived in Israel, but uh, the Christians killed them. That's what happened. The Talmud Yoshami was closed down because in the 360s, a little bit after the time of Constantine, uh, like two generations later, they just went and killed them all, uh, which is why the Yushami just went kaput and the Talmud Babli continued on. Uh, For a century and a half. The point is that uh, the Christians didn't deign or condescend to say, What are the Jews talking about? What are they actually doing over there? And all the rest of it. They figured they must be doing Old Testament interpretations, blind Old Testament interpretations, superficial Old Testament interpretations. And they had no idea, as I said before, that entire intellectual universe was being created on paper called the Talmud, you know, old Jewish traditions, of course, uh, and was creating a new reality. And the new reality. Was uh, the most significant uh, reality of Jewish history, and it's called the Talmudization of Judaism. Uh, so, you know, uh, the Christians could not have uh, had any idea of, about the Gemara, let's put it that way. Now, to be fair, uh, most Jews, many Jews, did not hear of the Talmud either for a long time. Just because a bunch of rabbis were doing something in this place or that place, in Surah Pumbidiza, doesn't mean Jews elsewhere, for example, in the Roman Empire, or in Turkey, or in Egypt, or in Italy, or places like that. Um, knew what was going on over there. Uh, after all, the last of the Amaroim, the last players in the Talmudic process, died in the year 500, Ravina the second, uh, That's pretty late, 500 CE. It's after the Western Roman Empire went down. And another century or century and a half of editing uh, continued, what we call the Rabbanon Savaroid. And so the book that you and I are so familiar with, that we've translated in our scroll, the rest of it, didn't really get out there as a published work, whatever that meant, before printing press, until, I don't know, the 600s? You know, maybe a little later, even, at all. And it's got to take another 100 years, at least, to spread throughout what we call the Jewish world. Do you understand what I'm talking about? It's an absolute revolution in Jewish life, although we take it for granted because we've been doing it for 1,200 years. Once upon a time, the Gemara as a text did not exist. So let me just give you one example I'm talking about before I move on in this. You'll find in the Gemara all the time, I'm sure many know this in the mission and such places, um, Rabbi Akiva says that this particular animal is kosher, I don't know, Rabbi Gamliel says it's not. You know, those kind of debates. Or if you fry it this way or this, is other, milking one says good, one says bad. Uh, who's right and who's wrong? The answer is neither one's wrong. Are oh, you telling me Rabbi Gamliel's wrong? you telling me Rabbi Akiva's wrong? The answer is they represented the two different traditions. You understand? There were places where people followed the Rabbi Gamliel way and he was giving the voice to that set of traditions and and, and, and uh, practices, and there was one was Rabbi Akiva or something like that. Like we might say today, not exactly the same way, but one could say, Sephardic Ashkenazic, uh, who's right, the one who eats kidney is or the one who doesn't eat kidney is? And it doesn't work like that. You see? They different traditions. So, eventually, these get involved in discussions in the Talmud, they get put on paper, and they get sort of ironed out, either explicitly or implicitly, or, or the future generations decided to come up with some kind of a final ruling out as a result of these discussions. And after that, let's say for argument's sake, that the consensus formed that the animal we're talking about is, is, is trafe. Let's just say that. That's it, baby. <laughs> Don't tell me, well, I'm going like somebody telling you. Doesn't work like that. We have a consensus forming, and then that becomes what we call today halacha. Isn't that interesting? The halacha comes out of, if you want to call it minha, what people ended up deciding to do which position to be followed. There wasn't a grand constitutional convention that ever took place of the leading Jews that said, we're going to do this or do that. It kind of just grew. That's one of the reasons why the Christians and the others never heard about it. Because it didn't happen in any kind of institutional form. It just happened. It's organic. It's spread across the Jewish world. And I would always say I, always, I would like to be a fly on the wall in a community back in those centuries where somebody came over here, I'm going to be anachronistic. Somebody came to a Yekish community, so to speak, where Italian community says, can't do this anymore. Can't do this anymore? We've been doing this for 500 years. My Bobby did it. My Zaidi did it. They're very religious. Talmud says he can't do it. What's this Talmud thing? Well, I guarantee you, maybe in the first round there's a fight or two, but as time goes on, sooner or later everybody's going to get with the program. That, that is what happened in Jewish history. The people who did not go with the program are called the Karaites. And they were marginalized and iced out and excommunicated and consigned to the status of uh, heresy and all the rest. And it's interesting. The Christians don't know this is going on. You understand? This kind of set of transformations. The Talmudization of Judaism, which is a process that can only happen once the Talmud is published in the book, only could take place after the year 500 or so. 500 CE, not BC, the other way, CE. And that means that huge transformations, actually 600, 700, huge transformations characterized Jewish life across the, the, the globe, whatever the Jewish globe was in those days, and um, there wasn't any public uh, national or international outcry about it because it happened on a communal level. Your kid, I know this has never happened in America, but the kid comes back to Yeshiva from Yeshiva and he says, Mom, we've got to stop doing this and we're going to start doing that. And the mother said, we're not going to do that. And, uh, and two weeks later, you do that. <laughs> has this ever happened? <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, And this is in, in our time. And I, I wonder if a future historian will even record this. But we've lived through it. So it gives a little bit of an insight, what happened 1,500 years ago. There's a new book out there called the Talmud, And you know, my Rebbe or whatever said, this is what you gotta do. And that's what you end up doing, right? and, you know, kicking or screaming or whatever. And, and, and this is what So what happened is, we're talking about the emergence of a new set of supreme canonical texts within Judaism. Displacing the Bible itself, if you want to be perfectly honest, the Torah is the Torah, and that's number one. And the Gemara's explanation of the Torah, I get that. But lemaisa, you don't look in the Chumash to see what, what the din is, all the rest of it. The boys in the yeshiva, uh, the Maskilim and the Hebreists, uh, notwithstanding, they don't study Chumash and Bible all day long. They study Talmud. Huh? Judaism very heavily went into a Talmudocentric kind of thing, and remains that way very heavily down till today. Does it not? And uh, although people thought that this was going down the tubes, read the newest, uh, what am I talking about, the survey, I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about, the the survey in New York, all the rest of it. It's the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox that are the ones that are growing, and the other ones isn't. It's funny. And so the result is that, um, you know, all across this, this is the Islamic empire over here, bigger than the Roman empire. Uh, This process I just told you about, the Talmudization, took place within the context of this empire, here is Iraq. That's where the Talmud Bavli emerged. Right where I'm pointing. Right smack in the middle of it. The belly button of the empire. It's right Baghdad. The two Baghdad was the capital city of the whole business over here. And uh, the famous Jewish cities of Surah and Pumadis were located nearby. And they vacated there and moved their yeshivas to Baghdad. Just as happens in our time. I've said it before. I'll say it again. The Mir Yeshiva is not located in a little town called Mir. Right? It's located where the money is. Same thing with the other, other schools. They had to move they had to move to place, well, but they had to do it. It wouldn't make any sense for them to be in a town called today it wouldn't make any sense. And so uh, it spreads, it's a complex process, but it spreads all throughout here. And in some fashion, it gets here also into Christian parts as well. How that happens is, is really not simple to, uh, to uh, deconstruct. But we know how it happens, uh, broadly speaking. Christians don't know about any of this. They don't know there's a new set of books out there that every Jewish community wants to get a copy of or something like that. Uh, they don't know that they're sending their kids away at young ages elsewhere to spend years and years studying this kind of stuff and not the Bible. They don't know you're actually producing a Jewish culture in which, <laughs> for better or worse, the sheep boys don't even know the Bible. Well, that's the simple fact. Uh, we know shops. Uh, rarely do you find the people that are into Tanakh. So in other words, the Gemara's we call generally Emerged as the supreme canonical text within Judaism by, say, the 800s without the Christians being aware of it. As far as the Christians were concerned, the books that they saw those Jews carrying around and reading were Old Testaments, maybe prayer books, uh, Bible commentaries along the lines of Rashi and other exegetes, Jewish exegesis, commentary on the Bible. All right. That may have interested the Christians from time to time. Rashi actually had a very interesting reception among Christians. They were interested in what he had to say. But the existence of a large and ever-growing body of Talmudic and halachic literature, <laughs> really large as we know, was a phenomenon which was not on the Christian radar. So to put it in simple terms, they heard of, they heard of Rashi on the Chumash. They never heard of Rashi on the Talmud. And Rashi's primary importance is on the Talmud. Okay? They should know about it. As far as the Jews are concerned these centuries... They preferred things that way for a number of reasons. Okay, Better that they don't know. Okay, Better they don't know. And by the way, uh, I have, over the course of my life, <laughs> come to strongly sympathize that I, every time I hear some fool call up a talk show and start to talk about what Judaism believes, I say, oh, why can't we go back to the old days <laughs> before radio and some make a fool of the Jewish religion? Okay? It's, it's, Understood? And so the Jews preferred it that way. First of all, they had disapproved in general of the Septuagint and the whole idea of getting their stuff out there in public. Uh, second of all, and this is really a tricky point, uh, there are a lot of anti-Christian passages in the Talmud, in Talmudic literature. Um, better the guy don't know. That's what they say. If you want to talk about the original uh, ideas in the Talmud, uh, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, this leads us to a consideration of two important matters. Very important matters. The Jewish view of Christianity and the Talmud's view of Christianity. The Jews, interestingly, um, have no point of view in Christianity. You know what I'm saying? Judaism has no point of view in Christianity. The Jews don't have a specific doctrine of how to respond to Christianity. They just held its baloney from day one. Uh, you have to understand what I'm saying. It's very infuriating to a Christian, usually, and I can totally understand why. Uh, to say I'm so insignificant that you don't even give the time to think of what I am—what about top liver You know, uh, Christianity, from the very beginnings of it, had a different development, and they have, from from then until today, literally today, devoted a great deal of attention, and it matters a lot to them how to define. Judaism and their, and their status vis-a-vis Judaism. Um, some people probably are a little aware of what goes on in the world. Uh, the Catholic Church has undergone tremendous transformations ever since the 1960s in their doctrines towards the Jews, uh, which is a good thing. And um, the, the popes these days, especially the last one, John Paul, was much better on this kind of stuff. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Perhaps the others don't. The internal Christian doctrine gives a great deal of, a, of, a, of, a, of weight and attention to how exactly to define themselves vis-a-vis the Jews, because after all, they call themselves the original Jews. You know, the verus Israel, the true Israel. The whole doctrine of supersessionism is one in which there were the uh, physical Jews and they've been superseded by the uh, spiritual Jews, the ones who accepted Jesus, but not 100%. They've never totally worked that out. And they've always had a big conflict on this, and they write about it. I'm talking about medieval popes already are writing about all this, and there's this conflictedness, which is what allowed us to survive. You know what I'm saying? The conflictedness of it allowed us survive because you should kill them, but not. They're very bad, but not. You know, uh, Christianity has struggled from day one. I mean this from day one to craft a doctrine of how to understand Judaism's place in the world. This is a process that goes on as we speak. I mean it. Uh, I'm not telling you that you should all go follow what happens in the Vatican all the time, but uh, it gets out in regular news, um, you know, uh, news outlets that uh, they have a commission on Jewish-Christian relations, and um, they're constantly working on revising and trying to update their take on the Jews. Um, until 1965, they uh, you know spoke about the accursed Jews. Then they did a 180 turn, and then they. You know, but not everybody agree with that, and they're you know, battling it out among themselves back and forth, and uh, a certain amount of politics involved in all this. Um, the current Pope, uh, Benedict, if you know anything about him, is extremely interested. As a theologian, precisely in the question of where does Judaism fit into um, the Christian worldview, because, because how you define Judaism is how you define Christianity. That's why they're fascinated with it. On the other hand, <laughs> the Jews aren't like that. We came first, and you built on us. We never told you to get on board. You said that you started the we new. Never, we never bought into that from day one. But how do you define Jesus? How do you define the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost? How do you define him? We have no definition on him. I just know it's not true. You understand? It's very infuriating. You, you don't have a Jewish commission to study the Christianity? Now, the reform do. That's for political correct purposes. I know that. But the Orthodox, and I assure you, the Catholic Church is really focused on the Orthodox. They don't have much time for the Reform and the Conservative. If you follow their internal literature, they're really interested in what do the traditional Jews say. Traditional have nothing to say on subject. And because traditional Judaism had nothing to say on subject, it was a vacuum. And a vacuum, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. So all kinds of opinions out there so you can follow, the Rambam has this set of views, Rashi has, I mean it, Rashi has a separate set of views, De Meiri is famous for being very pro-Christian, you know, very tolerant of Christianity, others say it's total of what others say it's this, others say that. Um, legends abounded. The reason I mention this is, if you have, what is the Talmud's opinion on Christianity? The Talmud doesn't have an opinion on Christianity. It just, says not true. You see? They might have all kinds of stories about Christians, but remember, the, in the Talmud's time, Christianity was Jewish. Is that true? You see? Time of the Tanaim, the Christians was literally Jews for Jesus. It was a Jews, a Jewish heresy. Uh, you tell me, what the rabbis in the Talmud thought of Jewish heretics. You know understand? Uh, I repeat, if it was a Christian thing, meaning if it's a Gentile thing, they have a completely different then they have an attitude of non interest. After all, what is the Talmud's opinion on Chinese religion? Is it like most of the people in the world with a Chinese religion? What's the Talmud's opinion on, on 150 different other religious, uh, you know, uh, the systems of belief? have no opinion on it. they consider it all. Oh, it's not us. Whatever. Let them do whatever they want. Uh, what is the Talmud's opinion of the fact that the Chinese consider themselves the Middle Kingdom and the Chosen People? It's all the game of all you know, fine, Let them do it. You know, let, let let them do whatever they want. If you ask really a Talmudist, what do you think about the fact that the Mormons? Or you know what I'm talking about, they're converting the shamans. Let them do it! <laughs> you know, who cares? You get it? That's the old Talmudic kind of attitude towards this. So as I say before, Christians, when they actually found this out, were very insulted. I mean, you, you know, you don't even have an anti-opinion to us. You know, <laughs> whatever, chop the you know, liver, as I said before. It, it really ticks off uh, thoughtful Christians. I've had this experience myself. It really ticks off thoughtful Christians if they learn that the Jews, Judaism, do not, does not have a specific opinion of Christianity because they consider important. Ignoring is more f- offensive than opposing. Would you agree with that statement? Okay. Um, as always, uh, excuse me, in any way, Judaism, because of its historical development, because we didn't have a country, we didn't have a Sanhedrin, we didn't have any kind of central institutions, developed in a non doctrinal way. It's kind of funny because we always think nowadays that they're trying to tell you all the hashkava stuff. But the fact of the matter is, Judaism, formally speaking, uh, never developed in uh, the way Christianity did, which is with a very precise interest in defining hashkafas, in defining doctrine. Uh, um, let me ask you the following question. What happens after you die? A Rashi says this, the Rambam says, I wrote it up in the article. Yeah? Another one says another thing, the Ramachal is the third thing. What's heaven and hell? What's the reward and punishment? Define the word God. Define the word angel. There's no official position of the Jewish religion on any of this. There's just different opinions of great scholars. I'll tell you another one. How's the Mashiach coming? That's a biggie. Right? (laughs) The Ramam says this way. The Labavid said another way. Shabbat the third way. This one says the fourth way. Rashi said, How's the temple coming back? Rashi says it's coming down heaven and fire. Ramam says it's going to be built by. So who's right? That's the point. They never said somebody's right. There's just a bunch of opinions out there. You know what I'm Nor was there an attempt in the Talmud or in the, or the culture coming out of the Talmud to force everybody, with rare exceptions, to force everybody in some kind of a straitjacket. You have to hold from this and this position. As a matter of fact, this kind of—I um, don't call freedom of speech, but let's put it that way—sometimes, as happens with freedom of speech, did get out of hand. And these are the Maimonidean controversies in the century after the death of the Rambam. There are people who push the envelope too far to the left, shall we say and offended the consents of the Jews and caused all kind of outbreaks and fights in Provence and in northern Spain. Uh, I'll give you an example. When they said, uh, uh, I'll just share a tiny bit of this. Um, is everything in the Bible literal? No. How do you say it's not? No. The Chazal don't believe it either, right? Let's put it this way. Did God come down and listen to Saddam? God doesn't come down. How do you know? God doesn't come down. How do you know? Uh Shirah Shirim, it got into the Bible or it didn't get into the Bible? It got into the Bible, Song of Songs. As x-rayed, how do they get, it? oh, it's a marshal. It says, no, it's a boy and a girl. It's a marshal. Even, no, no, I'm trying to show you, even Talmudic times, some things they don't do literally. Once you open that, it's a Pandora's box. So how do you know what's literal and what's not literal? If it can't be, it makes absolutely no sense, then it can't be literal, it must be a marshal, it must be an allegory. Interesting. So what if I have an issue with saying that Abraham lived really 180 years, 175 years? Maybe it's allegory. Maybe you tell me Sarah had a baby. People wrote like this. Sarah had a baby once she was 100 years. Old. Maybe it's an allegory. Allegory. Uh, Moses split the Red Sea. Come on, man. it's really an allegory, right? The d- donkey of Bill on spoke. No, it becomes a wholly subjective thing. Anything I don't like, I call an allegory. This, but that reflects, it's called the Maimonidean controversies. Yes, they, they argued over this very heavily. But what I can tell you is, that, like we would say today, Slifkin, You know, these kind of things. Um, But there was no Congress of Jewish rabbis or people who got together like the Vatican and said, all right, here's the official doctrine. Never was even an attempt to do that. So Christianity arose in a doctrinal manner, not so interested in the little details of ceremonial practice. Judaism was the opposite. We go crazy over whether or not an egg which was born in Yadav can be eaten or not, right? Uh, You know. (laughs) If you tie the shoe this way or not, the Christians can't understand it, but the Jews can't understand the Christianity. The, the you know their preoccupation with theological doctrine, uh, finiteness. You know, did Jesus have a nose or he didn't have a nose? Does it look like a nose or wasn't a nose? You know, is Mary really his his mother? Is it not really his mother? And it, you know, the Jews said, "What is all that?" So the two religious traditions came out of very different kinds of ways of thinking, and um, and therefore um, it's not surprising that the Jews never developed. An official doctrine on our position on Christianity. Um, what can I do? This is complicated, of course, by the Talmud's writing against Christianity, because as I said before they were heretics in the uh, Talmudic times. You understand that the nineteenth bracha the Shimon Esri is originally against these heretics, right? right? The Lamoshinim, they call now originally the Laminim. So, and at the end of the day, anybody knows the Talmud knows you can find agadic statements on any on both sides of any issue. I mean yeah. You'll find some who say that this is good, and some say this is bad, and this is good, so which one are you picking And How do you know yours is right? So there you have it. But, again, the Talmud clearly is of the opinion Christianity is something not good and not real. Uh, it doesn't have comp- so many complimentary things to say about the umos olam either, to be perfectly honest, although once in a while they do. And they, uh, this is the big problem, because now you're living under the Christians. So you definitely don't want these books to get out there, because <laughs> they'll get them angry. Uh, Naturally. In general, um, Christian ignorance about sweeping developments in Judaism was matched by Jewish ignorance about sweeping developments in Christianity. Uh, St. Augustine and other seminal early Christian thinkers were as unknown to the Jews as Ravina Ravashi were unknown to to the non-Jews. Understand this well. There's physical proximity. Jews live in Rome. I was just there. And I'm sure some of you were also. They live not far away from the Pope. And certainly in the rest of Europe. So physically they're there. But mentally, it's two different places. It's the cultural insularity that was spoken of elsewhere. And the Christian doesn't know about St. Augustine and he doesn't know about the church uh, fathers and he doesn't doesn't care. And vice versa. And this guy doesn't care about Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi uh, Venerav and all the rest of it. There were no formal Jewish writings in Christianity. Just legends. uh, Like they told us Yeshua. They did emerge in the Amoraic period. Nobody knows exactly when. A whole bunch of legends, uh, perhaps you've heard about. It. Now, this is the real story of Yeshua of Jesus. Oh, you know, a, he was an illegitimate child, and he was a magician, and this and other. He flew in the he flew in the air, and somebody pitched on him and shot him down. And all that. I promise you, you know, crazy stories. All the rest of it. The Queen Helen, and, and it was done on Queen Helen, who was the le- the queen of the Jews. There was no such thing as Queen Helen, the queen of the Jews. You know what I saying? It's a bunch of legends, but it got out there in the which I say, the Jewish urban legend uh, arena is still there today. It's a vacuum. So therefore something comes in to fill the vacuum. But ultimately Judaism had nothing to say about Christianity. Jews came to live among Christians outside Italy, more or less in Charlemagne's time. There's our friend Charlemagne, right? And uh, Charlemagne in, became the emperor in the year 800, the Holy Roman Emperor. By this time the Catholic Church uh, was in the process of dominating most of Europe. The church had worked out its own ideas of and Jews and Judaism in the universe, physical and spiritual. There's a whole elaborate doctrine, as I say before. The Jews, according to Christian view, could not be treated as just another non-Christian group. On the contrary, Jesus was born a Jew. the Bible stated the, Jews, the Bible stated Jews have been a chosen people. Even if they screwed up by rejecting the Christian Savior, the church could not develop a consensus that the Jews are now reduced to non-chosenness. Interesting, right? They just in potential chosenness. Uh, if you, I don't want to give a whole Christian lecture over here, but the bottom line is that they believe eventually they'll all come to see the light. Is this written in, it's, it's, it's written in the Gospels, you understand? That, and, and, and that will be the sign of their rechosenness, as it were. And until then, Christians have to sort of patiently await this kind of business. It's good for us they came up with this. You understand? There had to be a conflicted attitude towards the Jews, and there was in Roman Catholicism. There were enough positive statements in the New Testament about the Jews as there were negative ones. And basically, dealers' choice as to which set of statements would influence Christian attitudes towards the Jews. As far as the Jews are concerned, they're the helpless minority. They had no choice but to throw themselves on the mercy of the popes early on, like in the 500s already. Gregory the Great, one of the early and most famous popes, formulated the basic policy as really interesting. This is central Catholic teaching since the year 500 or so. That's a long time, um, which came to be formalized in a papal bull. That's a bull means you put it, pope puts a stamp on it. It's an official degree, decree called Sicca Judeus, uh, which is really fascinating. Re- look what it says over here. The, this is from the, the original popes. The Jews ought to suffer no prejudice. We out of the meekness of Christian piety and in keeping with the footprints of our predecessors of happy memory, the Roman pontiff, so-and-so and such-and-such, admit their petition Meaning we grant the Jews what they're asking for, which as you'll see is, is physical security. And we grant them the buckler or the shield of our protection. This is the Pope talking. For we make the law that no Christian compel them, unwilling or refusing, by violence, to come to baptism. You're not allowed to. It's interesting. This is this is sent people that most Jews don't even know this exists. This is the central teachings of the church. But if any one of them should spontaneously and for the sake of the faith, fly to the Christians, meaning if he does it lishma, then, once his choice has been evident, let him be made a Christian without any calumny. Indeed, he's not considered to possess the true faith of a Christianity if anyone who is not received, recognized to have come to Christian baptism, not spontaneously but unwillingly. So if you force somebody, it doesn't really count because he didn't mean it. You see, it's got to be... From a, two, also, no Christian ought to presume to injure their persons. Would you consider that an important statement? <laughs> okay. Uh, or with violence to take their property or to change the good customs which they have had until now in whatever region they inhabit. Meaning, you can't mess with Shabbos. And if they wear funny clothes, or tits, that's the good, you know, that's been around for a long time. And tradition is that they can do this. What we're really seeing over here is a leftover from the Roman Empire, because the Catholic Church, among other things, assumed the role consciously of the Roman Empire, and everybody had been the Vatican, see this in a second, of the Roman Empire, and they consider themselves uh, still the Pontifus Maximus, the uh, high priest and successor to the leaders of Rome. And by the time Constantine came along, ever since the Emperor Caracalla in the early uh, 200s, Judaism had been recognized as a licit religion. Not an illicit religion, but a rigi- rigi- li- licitas, licitas, which means a, a real religion and not some crazy thing. And these traditions survived in interesting ways into the Catholic Church, as you see over here. Look at this. Besides, in the celebration of their own festivities, no one ought to disturb them in any way with clubs or stones. I mean, I wish we, were, we could rely on that. You know, you, you wouldn't need the showroom. Nor on anyone... To, or anyone to require uh, him or to extortion of services they do not owe, except for those they've been accustomed times to past to perform. So in other words, taxes and things like that, they have to pay. But ordinarily, they're the inferiors, but, you see my point? And by the way, this is what the Jew wants. Agreed? The Jew's not asking in the Middle Ages for uh, citizenship and first-class uh, treatment. This will do. We decree that no one dare mutilate or diminish a Jewish cemetery. Isn't it? Yeah, You and I know what goes on today. We read, every week in the paper, you read it, unfortunately. Right? But it's against the church team. Nor in order to uh, get money to exhume bodies once they've been buried. So it must be the popes were told that uh, some Christian people were doing this to help the Jewish community for money. They said, You know, uh, you don't pay me, I'll go to your parents to a grave. Like, oh, yeah. The pope said, This is wrong. If anyone shall attempt the, uh, the tenor of the decree once known to go against it, none if anyone hurts the Jews against what I'm telling you, let him be punished by the vengeance of excommunication, which is a big deal in Catholicism, unless he corrects his presumption by making equivalent satisfaction, unless he does teshuva. So the point is that you... See, no, no, it's, a, it's interesting. Uh, uh, remember, according to them, we killed their God. According to them, they shouldn't be doing this. I'm trying to show you history is more interesting than fiction. I never understand why people waste their time reading fiction. Okay, this is more Jewish faith. Here, a a religious Jew would say like this: "This is uh, Yad Hashem. Does that make any sense that the church itself should emerge as the protector of the Jews, at least officially? Now, by the way, the Jews pay, pay plenty of good money to have it, but that doesn't mean anything. You pay good money to get anything in the Middle Ages, and if you want to know the honest truth, you do it today. They call it APAC, but they do, do the same thing today. Okay, So um, the fact is that, um, no, just to to get fair treatment, not special treatment, just to get fair treatment. uh, None of this, all this is saying is treat them like human beings. It's not saying elevate them and exalt them and give them fancy privilege or anything like that. It says don't destroy their cemetery. What kind of a jerk are you Want to do that? Don't beat them up when they're going to their services. Because the Jewish services is not Christian services at all. But the Jewish service has a legitimacy of their own. There's the conflictedness that I just told you about. There are cursed people. There are, you know, the church will call them all kind of names and put all kind of things against them. And yet, right, and yet. And so you see over here this kind of funny thing. It's f- physical security combined with theological condescension. But condescension can be a cover for lack of self-confidence. Would you agree with that statement? All the things they say about Christianity, they don't feel 100% comfortable in their supersession of Judaism. Protection for the Jewish religion and ceremonies. The Pope has no idea, though, that the, in practice, uh, when you say you have to protect the Jews at their ceremonies, he has no idea that these ceremonies are governed by the Talmud, because he doesn't even know it exists. He thinks it's the Old Testament. It's what you call in Hebrew, mekkah so it was a mistake. Overall, it's important to realize that the Church had a, a full plate, coming to the end here, had a full plate in the first half of the Middle Ages conquering and Christianizing barbarian Europe, Charlemagne wiped out the Germanic tribes that won uh, buckle and go Christian, and he spread it by the sword and all this sort of thing. Charlemagne was good to the Jews. He wasn't, wasn't good to the Christian pagans. The German pagans. Also, there was, pay attention, I'm about to tell you, a 1500-year war going on between Christianity and Islam. It's still going on today. Look at this. Here is a Here's the Roman Empire, all this. Here's the Middle East, when it was owned by the Romans and Christians. Then, that's round one. Then in round two, the Muslims took it all away. Then in round three came the Crusades. Wait a minute, go back, Jake. It came the Crusades and retook all this. And then in round four, the Muslims got it all back. And In round five, the Muslims went on the offensive, and let's do the next map, and took over a third of Europe. This is Budapest. That's how far they were. The Turkish Empire. Then, you can skip the map in round six, is it? The Christians took back all of Europe. And round seven, which is being waged today, the Muslims are taking over Europe again. There's a war that went on back and forth. Uh, you can't say it in public. The Pope is very well aware of this, I assure you. Okay, they're very well aware of this. And so, my point is like this. The church had bigger fish to fry than the Jews. That was good for the Jews. In the first day of the Middle Ages, they had a full plate to keep them occupied in um, doing great and immense things, conquering and Christianizing whole areas, setting up monasteries, and very impressive church culture—you can't knock it. And, and you know, we're not Christian, but they, you know, they developed an, an impressive Christian civilization of their own, and all the rest of that sort of thing. Uh, they were mainly concerned with the wars that were being waged with the Muslims over there. Um, all of this diverted attention away from the Jews, but. Um, And therefore, there wasn't that much direct pressure upon the Jews, and nobody paid too much attention to what the Jews were actually doing in their backyard. Nobody knows who Rashi really is except that he's a big Jewish scholar, you know what I mean? Even in France, like the Talmud, you know, what's all that? And um, you can't have, as they say before, any kind of meaningful arguments, disputations, because pshat remes Drasod. The Christian wants to talk at the level of Christian sod. The Jew wants to talk at the level of pshat. I mean, they're talking past each other. The mutual unawareness comes to an end in the 13th century with the pontificate of this guy, Pope Innocent III, uh, perhaps the most impressive uh, of medieval popes. I mean, everybody agrees to that. Uh, And a guy who caused us a lot of trouble, Uh, that's something that we'll pick up next week.